Welcome. This is Michael Volkoff, and this is episode 77 of Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. And our episode today is a discussion on how to implement an effective trade compliance program. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining me today on Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, a podcast focused on the legal and compliance industry. And as always, before we get started, two points. Please uh, subscribe to our podcast podcast and rate the podcast to help let other compliance professionals know about the podcast. Second, I wanted to mention that my law firm, the Volkoff Law Group, provides uh, ethics and compliance program services, including trade compliance and specifically sanctions and export control compliance. Uh, We have extensive experience in this area and help companies ensure compliance with sanctions, licensing, requirements, export controls. We analyze transactions, secure licenses when needed, and ensure compliance with applicable sanctions and export requirements. Um, If you're interested in our services in this area, please contact me at mvolkoff at volkofflaw.com. Well, welcome. Uh, Glad to uh, finally get to discussing the trade compliance area. Um, A couple of uh, sort of Initial observations. First, this is just an area where I believe uh, in many companies we see silos. Um, Sort of the expertise in trade compliance um, has accrued into its own silo and oftentimes is not part of the compliance department. Um, And I'd like to see, I think that those, there, there are too many functions that are sort of overlapping. Uh, and that synergies and efficiencies can uh, be earned by breaking down that silo and bringing together uh, the two functions uh, and making sure they're operating together. Um, Second, uh, there's a lot of, there has been guidance on uh, compliance that's been issued by the Department of Treasury's Office of Foreign Asset Control, OFAC, uh, the Department of Commerce, uh, Bureau of Industry Standards, and the Department of State's Defense Directorate and Trade Compliance uh, relating to ITAR, in that case, whereas at Commerce, obviously, we're talking about the EAR, the Export Administration Regulations. Um, This year, in an interesting development, OFAC is expected to issue updated guidance on compliance programs. And I wanted to mention this up front because it's something to watch out for. Uh, on December 3rd, 2018, Treasury Under, Undersecretary uh, Segal Mandelaker, who uh, I know from uh, working at DOJ in the uh, uh, Bush administration, previewed, uh, she previewed anticipated guidance from OFAC regarding what constitutes an effective economic sanctions compliance program. Um, and in a speech, uh, she articulated the several important elements Uh, including ensuring the senior management commitment to compliance, conducting frequent risk assessments to identify and mitigate sanction-specific risks, developing and deploying internal controls in order to identify, interdict, escalate, report, and maintain records pertaining to prohibited activity, engaging in testing and auditing to identify and correct weaknesses and deficiencies, and ensuring all relevant personnel, particularly those in high-risk areas or business units, are provided tailored training. Um, in, in her remarks, she also said that uh, from OFAC's standpoint, uh, screening for SDNs or sanctions uh, uh, programs is not sufficient by itself. 
In other words, what they're saying is they want to see more than just a one person screening uh, uh, transactions to make sure they comply with uh, OFAC. So this is something that we really um, have to monitor, and it should come out sometime this year. I'm hoping sooner rather uh, than later. But these kind of compliance commitments are important, particularly if you end up in a situation with a voluntary disclosure where there's uh, an apparent violation. Um, they want to see uh, the type of compliance program that they're talking about has been implemented and the resources that go far beyond uh, merely screening the SDN list. So let's dig in a little bit more on the details. Uh, let's start with sanctions. As we know, economic sanctions have been used throughout history um, as a foreign policy tool, and um, frankly, this is an area that has become uh, more important as time has gone on with Iran, Venezuela now, and um, with Russia, uh, these are areas uh, that are pretty complex in terms of sanctions regimes and what is uh, being intended, uh, how this is tied into foreign policy goals, uh, and policymakers are obviously intervening in this area. We've seen uh, big changes, uh, for example, in the reimposition of the Iran sanctions, and we saw recently with the political turmoil in Venezuela that we have a new sort of sanctions regime uh, being put into place there. But remember, when we talk trade compliance, we're really talking about three sets of regulatory regimes, uh, that being OFAC, uh, which has a responsibility for economic sanctions based on U.S. foreign policy and national security goals. And we have sanctions that are comprehensive, which means countrywide, we have selective, which are specially designated nationals list, and then we have sector-based restrictions, which are on designated entities in specific sectors. Uh, in Russia, in Venezuela are good examples, uh, which prohibit certain types of transactions, meaning debt within certain time frames, equity within certain time frames, those types of things. We also have the Department of Commerce's uh, Bureau of Industry and Security, BIS, which controls dual-use products. Um, and then we also have um, the Department of State's Directorate of Defense Trade Controls, which administers defense items and the export controls under the International Traffics and, uh, Traffic and Arms Regulations. Um, and we have uh, the FinCEN Guidance, U.S. Department of Treasury's FinCEN guidance regulating uh, financial institutions with regard to um, uh, BSA, AML, uh, customer due diligence, and beneficial ownership rules. Uh, all of this has an impact on sanctions and export compliance uh, and OFAC compliance in particular. Um, so OFAC compliance we look at uh, companies that have overseas suppliers, customers, clients. Remember, it's not just uh, with regard to third parties, but customers, clients, partners, um, and uh, your relationships with them, and the requirements that we have certain compliance pl uh, procedures in place. Um, penalties, obviously, in the OFAC area can be criminal, and if they are, then they're prosecuted by the Justice Department or civil, uh, and those are prosecuted by OFAC. 
through regulatory uh, enforcement. OFAC compliance, um, we always talk about screening, which has to be done real time, but that's obviously not the entire um, process of a, a trade compliance program. That's not how you uh, meet all the requirements. Uh, the screening process involves uh, several steps. One is we collect information from, let's say, the potential supplier, third party, uh, or customer, um, usually using a standardized form or questionnaire of some sort. We screen the company, and um, these days that extends down to beneficial owners. And we screen them against, let's say, for example, the OFEC uh, lists in targeted countries, and we screen the beneficial owners. And are there any matches? This is not just with regard to OFAC, but we obviously have sanctions regimes in other countries, the EU, the UK. Um, and whatever screening process is done, there are various open source intelligence products that are offered. Um, we can start to approve, deny, escalate, or collect more information. Uh, and that's sort of uh, the process that we build around. Um, with regard to BIS and regulatory compliance, um, let's go back to the licensing process. And a lot of people use what's called the SNAP-R, obviously. That's SNAP-R is the um, process by which you can submit online requests for licenses from BIS. And BIS administers what I mentioned before, the Export Administration Regulations. Um, and a small percentage of exports involving dual-use type of technologies that can be used for military purposes or used for improper purposes um, uh, require a license. Most commercial uh, items uh, are regulated under the EAR. The, they call that the EAR, the Export Administration Regulations. And uh, this is obviously where you have commercial and military uses. Um, and items with the greatest potential for military use are regulated uh, the most uh, strictly. So in determining whether something uh, falls within BIS's ear and the jurisdiction, uh, you have to ask uh, several important questions because the determination of a licensing requirement depends upon these variables. What am I exporting? So different types of items have different levels of controls. Where is it going? Different countries have different levels of controls. Who is receiving it? The end user uh, may affect the level of controls. What is the end use? And the end use may affect the level of controls. Uh, and so answers to these questions have to guide whether or not you, um, for example, have to secure a license. Um, the, the processing uh, or the process, the BIS compliance process, generally the first step, you have to determine the appropriate export control classification number, ECCN. Um, and these are obviously very product dependent. Um, this is then listed on the commerce control list, the CCL, in the EAR. And this is a technical and sort of engineering-based determination that is best made by the manufacturer or someone who has detailed understanding of the item, item specifications. Um, you can also request an ECCN classification from BIS, um, and they will sometimes 
they will get back to you and sort of say this is where it falls. After you get your ECCN classification, uh, the next step is to review the commerce country chart, you, uh, which is supplement number one to part 738, and you determine the level of control for the country of export or re-export. Different countries, like I said, are subject to different levels of control. Then you determine if a license required, and there also are, and I would urge you to take a moment to spend some time with the exceptions. There are several potential exceptions that are available, and that can uh, have a dramatic impact on whether or not you require a license. Those are sort of the, the basic outlines of sanctions and basic outlines of BIS compliance, um, it also, these principles apply as well with ITAR and with regard to determining whether something is on the United States munitions list and then what is required uh, in terms of registration of your company if, uh, if you fall within that requirement, as well as specific licenses for specific transactions. Trade compliance has to be, unlike other areas, has to be integrated very carefully with your company's operations. This involves, uh, you know, having operational personnel involved in the administration of the program. There's just no way for compliance personnel to uh, run the business at the same time as ensuring compliance. So the operational personnel in, uh, are, have to be, there's more than just buy-in. They're just required uh, to do certain things. And a lot of companies have taken the time, and I think it's worthwhile, to map out the controls with a manual. And uh, that is really an important part uh, of building the operational structure and ladling in that the appropriate compliance controls. So... Um, the first step in making sure your operational personnel are involved is to make sure that they participate and help conduct an initial risk assessment. So why, what are you exporting and why are you exporting and what's your intention with regard to these items? Um, they have to be part of that process and how are we going to design step-by-step -step controls around that? So you build your trade compliance program around your operational structure. This is much different than, say, let's say, anti-corruption compliance, AML compliance. This is really, there's more operational aspects to this. Because one of the first things that has to be done is you have to understand the items that you're moving and potentially transporting. Um, where do they fall in terms of classification? Are they dual use? Uh, and then who are they going to uh, for purposes of sanctions and for purposes of BIS's licensing requirements. Um, so uh, you have to ask your operational personnel and, and put something together that who should be responsible, who's going to take ownership of this, where is the ownership and what controls and processes need to occur, and where should these checks occur, and how are we going to manage uh, this program and how is it going to be, uh, how is there going to be oversight? Now, every company is going to be different. Where does it make sense to have trade compliance checks and planning for your company? 
Um, a lot of people use sort of accounting or, or sales people or even logistics people to do screening. That's fine, but my the the point with regard to like BIS and classification for export control purposes on dual use items is there has to be a determination and somebody has to be take ownership of what items are being moved, what's their ECCN classification, and what are the applicable uh, restrictions and licensing requirements. So you build a trade compliance program, but at the same time, you're also building a management program on what makes sense for your organization. So the key word here is collaboration. Even if just looking at the sanction screening process itself, where that occurs is going to be in a part of the business, be it accounting, sales, logistics, third-party screening service, whatever you do, that's going to be built into the business. So now... I've mentioned risk assessment and a lot of us, you know, sort of roll our eyes with risk assessment and, you know, we're familiar with this concept in anti-corruption, enterprise risk assessment, you know, other topics. But here, it's a pretty specific type of focus on a risk assessment. Are you exporting uh, overseas? What do you have suppliers overseas? Who owns your suppliers? Um, are you uh, an educational institution, a financial institution? Uh, does your business use or purchase complex or technologically advanced products from overseas? Um, I guess my biggest piece of advice here is it doesn't have to be expensive and time-consuming, uh, and there's a collaborative process that can be used here to increase efficiency by bringing operational personnel into the fold here in this process because they know the risks, they know the, the business, how it operates. They may not know exactly all the ins and outs of the legal ups and downs and risks and exceptions, but at least they're going to be, become familiar with it by making them part of the risk assessment process, building them into it. Um, BIS uh, um, elements, they've actually you know, some of the con consistent elements of an effective export compliance management program um, is there's a fair amount of guidance on this. And let's talk about sort of what I would say are the nine core elements of an export compliance management program. Um, obviously, we, we, and these are obviously very common, uh, you're going to know these, but there are some specific little nuances to, to me that are important in the trade compliance area. So we always talk about management commitment, that there have to be written export and sanctions compliance documents, which are adopted by senior management. There have to be sufficient resources dedicated to this. And there has to be a designated uh, person and personnel who are responsible for compliance. Um, just like uh, risk assessment processes in other areas, we need to see a continuous risk assessment, at least an annual update to the program to reflect changes in your business, your risks over time. Um, we have a formal, and I mentioned preparing an operational manual, but we have a formal written uh, export management and compliance program, which includes and incorporates a detailed operational um, manual. Um, there are, uh, there also as part of these sort of nine elements, core elements, ongoing training and awareness. 
uh, pre- and post-export compliance screening. You screen all parties to a transaction throughout the export life cycle, and OFAC sanctions change frequently, so you have to screen in real time. So, for example, a best practice is, let's say you execute a contract or you're about to execute a contract, you screen the uh, company uh, that you're contracting with, and uh, when the shipment goes out, let's say pursuant to a purchase order under that contract, let's say six months later, you're you know you have a series of purchase orders pursuant to this contract. On each occasion, it needs to be screened again, uh, and that's because there are changes. And we even had an enforcement action where changes occurred in between uh, this time period between the contracting and the shipment. Uh, and we had an enforcement action by OFAC this year in which they called, or last year in which they called this uh, issue out. Along with this are record keeping and regulatory requirements. Uh, we always follow the five year record retention rule uh, here. Um, and we, uh, in terms of maintaining records, and remember again that in licensing area, particularly in the BIS, area and occasionally on OFAC uh, requirements there are documentation requirements as to specific documents that have to be kept uh, and maintained. Licenses will for example often uh, have documentation as to control or storage of a particular item. OFAC will also sometimes require record keeping as to transactions uh, and occasionally we have clients who receive a knock on the door and there's an audit requirement uh, coming in uh, are going to be, let's say, commerce officials or even OFAC officials to audit uh, your paperwork. Um, then, uh, going on with some of the other elements of an effective uh, compliance program in this area, we have internal and external compliance monitoring and periodic audits. Uh, these are obviously critical to ensure your program is working. Uh, and a lot of people use outside third parties for large entities to ensure that there's a comprehensive review. Um, a reporting structure, you know, of hotlines and employee reporting is really important in this area because the sooner you find out about a potential issue, the quicker you can engage in a corrective action and then be proactive in remediation. And you may end up having a voluntary disclosure uh, but at least you take steps to prevent reoccurrence. Um, and so these are important elements of um, the trade compliance program. Again, just a review, we have a management commitment and a strong compliance culture, a qualified and empowered uh, designated uh, trade compliance officer um, uh, who has a direct line of communication to the board and senior management and is familiar with navigating EAR, OFAC, and ITAR regulations, ITAR if it applies, uh, with full authority to investigate and ensure compliance-related issues are resolved and obviously um, it has the ability to uh, and has to have the authority to um, stop a transaction unless there's a full uh, compliance is documented and the trade compliance officer is ensure of that, is short of that. Um, we mentioned policies, procedures, and controls, written and communicated policies, procedures, and controls, uh, hotline and investigation protocol. Um, one 
One uh, other key area that I see with sort of technology developments is an effective use of information technology. Uh, companies so have to maintain a robust screening procedure, um, and uh, you know, with application of the fifty percent rule in the sanctions context, uh, the number of prohibited entities and individuals can be quite daunting these days. Um, so. There's no way that you can do this manually and monitoring it manually by, let's say, entering, going to the OFAC website and entering the name and saying, okay, I've got a, you know, I, I set a 70% match uh, requirement and say, hey, this is uh, fine, let's go forward. Uh, information technology and services, which are re really affordable these days, uh, has to be used and should be sort of incorporated within the program. So it's important to understand your IT system, your screening protocols, how the, the program works, and possible gaps in screening capabilities. Again, we had an OFAC enforcement action where it was clear that the company didn't understand exactly um, the limitations of its screening system and uh, the protocol that was needed to ensure compliance. So uh, focusing on effective screening, end user verification, and uh, one other issue that's very important is end user certification because documentation is really important here. Uh, and we need to see end users um, verifying certain representations. This can't be done orally over the telephone or in an email. Um, we really need to see a verification and certification form uh, that's used and regularly uh, updated uh, to make sure that we have adequate documentation. So real-time updates and accuracy is critical. Um, so IT screening programs these days have a range of features and search algorithms, and it's important to generate custom re reports. We have to maintain documentation update the screening status uh, through immediate notification of changes in status. All of this points to, yet again, the idea of an IT platform of some sort when it comes to managing third parties. I've already talked about that, but here with regard to, um, uh, with regard to um, trade compliance, it's absolutely critical uh, to, again, have a platform that's going to give you IT capabilities, documentation, ease of documentation, maintaining folders that have all of the information relating to all of the compliance activity. Uh, these are important ideas uh, and the reason that IT is really important in this area. Uh, Regular employee training is an important compliance function to ensure familiarity with business policies, procedures, and requirements. Frontline employees have to be trained on compliance requirements. Second-line employees like accounts payable, audit, and other important gatekeepers should be familiar with relevant policies, procedures, and requirements. These are easy people to turn, particularly accounts payable, to turn into advocates for you and to turn into additional help. I call it another line of defense. Um, and real-life examples, obviously, as part of your training content is really important, um, tailored to the audience perspective. Uh, 
So uh, reviews, assessments, and audits, I mentioned that. Uh, regular compliance reviews, risk and compliance program assessments, obviously, and audits should be conducted uh, typically by outside lawyers, consultants. Uh, internal functions should also be developed. And uh, I would always maintain a healthy balance between internal and outside functions uh, to ensure appropriate intervals between internal and external uh, reviews. So that's a pretty general overview of trade compliance and some of the issues that come up. Um, there's obviously a lot of sort of nuance and detail here depending upon your business, depending upon whether you're an ITAR, depending whether you're in uh, subject to a lot of BIS uh, licensing requirements, you have dual use products. Um, this is something, uh, please, you know, keep an eye out for the OFAC guidance. We'll, of course, probably have a, a webinar and a podcast related to that after it comes out, but we're going to be uh, looking for that because I think it's going to be very, very helpful in this area. Remember my main uh, point here is break down the silos, bring all the functions together, uh, use information technology, um, and incorporate uh, business operations into the whole process uh, and into a manual, which is going to make your life easier. That's my job here, and we're trying to make your life easier. So thank you again for, uh, for today, and we appreciate uh, your time, and we'll be back in touch uh, with regard to the next uh, compliance topic. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Please subscribe to the podcast series. The Volkoff Law Group believes that every company should have a robust ethics and compliance program. Experience and research show that ethical companies are better performers in the global marketplace. At Ethical Companies, employees believe in the company, they feel vested, and are more productive. As a result, misconduct rates are much lower and financial performance is higher. We can help you achieve these benefits through an effective ethics and compliance program. You can learn more about our commitment to effective ethics and compliance programs at our website, www.volkhofflaw.com, our award-winning blog, Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, and our new podcast series. You can contact me at my email address, mvolkoff at volkhofflaw.com. Let us know how we can help you achieve your goals.